Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the wonderful, the everlasting, the amazing gospel of Mark. Many thanks, and what a blessing to have Cam with us this morning and Diana leading us in worship. What a great privilege to gather as the people of God, to wake up this day, to breathe God's air, and to drive to a dress rehearsal for heaven, even in the rain. To be part of those who have been called and collected. To be part of those who have been chosen by God, who have been purchased by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Now, I was reminded by the great Charles Spurgeon this week that the church is not an institution for perfect people. It is a sanctuary for sinners. Saved by grace, it is a nursery for God's sweet children to be nurtured and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. The church is the dearest place on earth. Thus, if nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church, therefore, being his, let us also belong to it. That by our prayers and our gifts and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. How dear is that? The eminent theologian Jonathan Edwards, when considering the, the beauty and the purpose of the church, he proclaimed that the whole world was created that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse. Being reminded, even last week, that we are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. And that therein lies the true value and worth of the Christian. And thankfully, gloriously, it has nothing to do with us, our merit or our beauty. And that is good news. If it were our merit that gives us value, what happens when that merit is lost? If it were our beauty that made us attractive, what happens when that beauty fades? How joyful to know that our merit is imputed by Christ. And our beauty is found in Christ. That which makes you valuable is not dependent upon us if we be in Christ. The merit and the beauty of Christ are ours, given in undeserved grace, given in abundance to us this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we took our next steps on the challenging road of the Olivet Discourse, beginning a new series of last things titled... A servant is not greater. Looking through the lens of persecution in verses 9 through 13 of Mark's 13th chapter, as are so many instances of prophecy and eschatology, this is a telescopic lens, allowing us to see both near and far fulfillment, and even to see reminders and pictures, something of antitypes along the way in our present age. We have turned our gaze with Jesus off of the Natural and physical manifestations of the end of days, the earthquakes and famines, off of the wars and the deception of the end of days represented by Jesus in the first four signs, corresponding, of course, to the first four seals, our first four horsemen of Revelation 6. And we've now turned our gaze toward God's elect during this period. We've turned our eyes now toward the fifth seal of Revelation 6, which is actually going to take us to a number of places around Scripture and what this world will look like for those who would name the name of Christ during the time of the tribulation. We understand through Jesus' distinctions in verse 9 last week that we would see two sources of persecution against the people of God. Jesus talks about persecution coming from the courts and the synagogues. And Jesus also speaks of kings and governors, understanding that Jesus is speaking here of both Jewish and Gentile persecution, courts and synagogues being Jewish, kings and governors being Gentiles, meaning that persecution is going to be coming from every quarter. Of course, the near fulfillment of this for the disciples was made clear by Jesus in Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Note, Jesus told them that they will be put out of the synagogue. 
not for being lovers of God, but that those who kill them will they think they have done God a favor. And not only did we see throughout Acts and the epistles God using the flames of persecution to build his church, but Jesus' words and promises to his disciples and close followers concerning this coming persecution we know later will be realized in horrific reality. Consider the disciples alone and even those who penned our gospels. Philip, who was crucified. Matthew, who was beheaded. John was abandoned. Barnabas was burned to death. Mark was dragged to death. James the Less, he was clubbed to death. Paul was beheaded. Peter and Andrew were both crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Luke was hanged in Athens. Of course, the glorious truth of their deaths, indeed of all 70 million Christians martyred since Christ's ascension, who was beautifully encapsulated by Justin Martyr, who by himself was also martyred in AD 165, when he said, quote, you can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm, close quote. And how true is that for the Christian, and indeed for the corporate body of Christ, as we are reminded of the great gift that persecution has been to the church over the ages. How it causes her to rise up and to shake off the comatose state and the fatness that comes with time of prosperity and largesse. Based on history, while we pray for peace and to be able to worship in freedom, History, as our guide, says that we should pray for persecution. And in fact, I recall reading in the voice of the martyrs about how the churches in China actually pray for the church in America. They pray we might experience hardship and persecution. They pray that we might know a faith that costs us something, that requires some skin in the game. How can we truly value a faith that has cost the bearer nothing? Even as Jesus told us, verse 9, But see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to courts, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a witness to them. And so it was, and it is. But there is a greater manifestation of this coming, as the restraining force of the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth with the rapture of the church in 2 Thessalonians 6, with the full wrath of the Antichrist let loose against those who would name the name of Christ in the time of the tribulation. All the synagogues that are still in use today around Israel will one day be put to the task of persecution. Gentile authorities as well, and we'll dive further into that today. But still, even amongst all this calamity, as the world groans and begins to finally buckle under the weight of judgment and sin with the the rapid decay that comes when the, the preserving saltiness of the church is taken out, we know from Mark 13, 10 that the gospel will go forth. Not only will it go forth, but we saw that it will go forth in a power and in a method that has never been known. Consider, saints... If the scheming of Nero could not squash a supposed Jewish offshoot called the Way, if communist regimes and Islamic regimes of our day could not put the fire of the gospel in their countries out, if the onslaught of secular humanism in our public schools and universities cannot kill the work of God to save a people unto himself, the persecution of the coming Antichrist will only fan the flames. The gospel is the fire that grows stronger against the winds of persecution. And we looked at the manifestations of that in the time of the tribulation. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will be saved mightily and that will preach mightily during this time. Many will be saved through their testimony, these tribulation saints. That we'll learn more about today. We also took an amazing look at Revelation 11 and the two witnesses. The incredible power that they'll have even being raised to life for the whole world to see. It's incredible stuff. And only last and finally for an angel to preach in the mid-heaven for all to see. Proclaiming the gospel as one final push before the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
A day the prophet Malachi says will burn like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And while we've often looked to Zechariah in our time of last things and his incredible prophecy of end times, the prophet Zephaniah looked to this day as well. In Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18, declaring, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of darkness and dis- of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry. Against the fortified cities and the high corner towers, I will bring distress upon men, so that they will walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. And by the way, Zephaniah uses that language that the flesh will be like dung, because that means that there won't even be anyone left to deal with. With the corpses. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed, a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Amidst all of this, the gospel will go out by miraculous means, even to the end. Even if an angel in the mid-heavens must declare it, so it is. And what a blessing to be able to see and respond to the gospel message here on this side of eternity. On this side of terrible tribulation. To have the hope of either falling asleep in Christ and being with the Lord. Or to be raptured and caught up with him in the sky. And so shall you ever be with him. To be a Christian during the time of the tribulation will be certain death. To be a Christian in this time nearly assures one's execution. And saints, as unseemly and perhaps even offensive this is on the gentle ears of some, God saw fit to give us these details in his word. To preserve for us the truth and the warning of the consequence of sin revealed in Jesus' answer. I know we all bemoan the wickedness that we see on the news. We see escalations of perversions unthinkable even 10 years ago. And yet we walk outside and the sun shines upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But no, not one instance of wickedness will go unaccounted for. Scripture says, beloved, that these people store up for themselves wrath. In the day of wrath. We must make that connection. Lest God's seeming slow response now. Or his overwhelming response later. Seem unreasonable to any. All will be accounted for. I was thinking on just such a principle a while ago. We were at a a neighborhood water park with the kids. And they had these buckets overhead. That would slowly fill up with water. And as soon as they would reach and fill to a certain point, they would tip over and they would dump on those below. That's a very apt analogy for God's decreed end, that the bowls of wrath fill up, as it were, and they will be poured out. Being reminded with Peter once again, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to conduct yourselves in holiness and godliness. Beloved, let us keep this application of learning ever before us, ever before us. Well, today we continue on in our next set of verses, looking again to the the fate and the sacrifice that awaits those in Christ during these times, and indeed the promises that are theirs in Christ. And we see woven into this text the sovereignty of God in such days, as the Holy Spirit speaks through his people, and we'll behold the dynamics of families and people in this time, and of course, the reason that all this is happening. Jesus answers the why for us today. 
being reminded even in it all that Jesus has gone before us. That a servant is not greater than his master. In all paths we are called to walk. Christ has gone ahead of us in suffering, pain, and even death. So beloved, with that, let us open with our text this morning. Once again, Mark 13, 9 through 13. Mark 13, 9 through 13. But see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they lead you away, delivering you up, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, embolden and enrich in our hearts this morning as we approach this text anew. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. We need to see this rightly. We need to know who you are and all of your attributes as we see your revealed word to us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would go before it, that you would prepare the hearts to receive what you would have for us, that we might be a people ready. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, like part one in our series, you'll notice that we've kept the underlying portions in our text pointing us to a great truth that's undergirding all that will come to pass. That first they will deliver you to the courts, then you will be beaten in the synagogues, then you will stand before governors and kings, then they will lead you away, delivering you up, then you will be betrayed unto death. You will be put to death, and you will be hated by all. Seeing clearly our Savior in the text. That those called to walk this road may march boldly behind Christ, their captain. And in telling his disciples what is to come. And in telling generations of Christians that will suffer what is to come. In telling the tribulation saints what is to come. He says, I'm going to go there first. I'm going to go before you. Many of you know, beloved, that we publish all of our messages on a server called Sermon Audio. And in fact, I believe that on our last report, it said that our messages are being listened to in over 16 countries now. And what you may not know is that this ministry stores all of those sermons off-site and off-grid. No fire or flood can destroy them. They cannot be hacked or destroyed from the outside. You never know who will be listening in the future. Or when biblical doctrine itself will become illegal to disseminate. Is it possible that a tribulation saint, one saved during the terrible, this terrible time, may listen to this series? Facing the very realities we are speaking of. Not only is it possible, but given the absence of churches and preaching, of teaching and discipleship during that time, right? Because the church has been raptured. These saints will consume these precious and highly illegal resources with much vigor. So not only is it possible, I dare say it is likely, even as possessing the very message you listen to now would be the death penalty. Imagine every Bible teacher, every pastor, every believer gone, and God saves you during this terrible time. Imagine how hungry and desperate for answers you will be. Therefore, we teach and preach these difficult things with not only ourselves in mind. Only God knows how our little church might be used in future times. So with that, let us dive into our next verse. Having looked at 9 and 10 last week, we look to Jesus' continued response in verse 11. Verse 11. 
And when they lead you away, delivering you up, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Well, we, say the, we see these same words recorded in Luke's account in chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. And, of course, Matthew 10 and 24 give us really the same essence of its reading. It is good for us to take great comfort and great confidence in the common threads of Scripture as the Holy Spirit weaves a single tapestry of truth throughout. And here Jesus gives us such great and precious promises to those who would suffer for his namesake. No time would pass at all before the near fulfillment of that promise would come to pass. Consider all that we see in the New Testament Consider the incredible account in Acts 4, where Peter and John have had Jesus' words come to life. And as they're hauled before Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and others that were of high priestly descent. Although I'm sure they were shook to be in such a place, knowing that their death could be pronounced at any moment. They declare boldly, he is the stone which was rejected by you. The builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which me must be saved. And now, listen, beloved, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Peter and John were hauled before them from jail. They were not given some parchment and quill to jot down a few notes. No, Acts 4 verse 8 says their words were inspired and given power and delivery by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus said it would be. That's what verse 11 means. And where else do we see this boldness in the face of danger and death in the New Testament? Where the individual spoke extemporaneously, meaning impromptu, off the cuff, with no preparation. How about Stephen? The very first Christian martyr in scripture. We see his account in Acts 6 and 7. It's both simultaneously the shortest ministry and the longest speech recorded in Acts. Well, not only does Stephen not worry about what he has to say, but in the face of certain stoning and death, proceeds to not only recite perfect history to them, but cuts them to the heart with his rebuke. And the people were enraged at Stephen. When the crowd wants to stone you afterwards, that's a good sermon. Of course, it was the great evangelist George Whitfield that said, quote, it is a poor sermon that gives no offense, that makes the hearer that makes neither the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher, close quote. Nor was Paul a stranger to speaking boldly in the face of certain death and danger. I could go on, go through the reformers. We could spend all day recalling their bravery, staring down a most horrific fate. They had no Bible in front of them when they were commanded to recant. They had no notes when they were hauled before councils. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that gave words, that brought the scripture to mind, that resides in the heart, that's dedicated to memory, Psalm 119.11, formulating them and organizing and delivering them as only the Lord can recite his own words. And on we go through history. One need only read Fox's Book of Martyrs, the voice of the martyrs, story after story of those who spoke with great beauty and great clarity as they took leave of their earthly bodies. Luke 21 records, For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Saints, this reality must pervade our understanding. Looking to the beginning of our text, note Jesus says, When, not if. This will happen. And when it does, do not worry. Do not trust in your own strength and ability. It's not your words. Now, we're not talking about normal times of preparation for ministry and learning. This is not a 
pastor's get-out-of-jail-free card for studying and preparing. I'm just going to rely on the Holy Spirit. Not the way it works. Our text says, in that hour. To me, this is a time of emergency. This is a time of being pulled from your bed, arrested and hauled in. That's what this is speaking of. And sadly, we have and we will see this persecution with increasing regularity. Where finally in the time of tribulation, it will grow into an outright hunting of Christians. Accused of the highest treason against the new world system and religion. And still there is nothing new under the sun, saints. Why were the early Christians persecuted? What was their exact crime on paper? They proclaimed a God higher than Caesar. That's the crime. Now fast forward to modern times. How about today? Why exactly did persecution come? For example, during the excesses and overreaches of COVID. And to whom did it come? Who did it come to? It came to those who proclaimed that there was a God higher than Caesar. And that Christ was the head of the church, not the state. Now instead of Nero, today we call it government agency XYZ. But during this time of overreach, we said the same as the early church martyrs before us. There is a God higher than the state. Nothing new. The state has always competed to be God to her citizenry. Whether it be a pharaoh or a Nero, or a state official putting chains on a church door and arresting its pastor, it is the same spirit at work. John tells us in his first letter, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Talk to any pastor that's defied the state and kept their church doors open during COVID, and they will tell you, Of the hundreds of death threats that came to them. They were vile and horrible. There were countless people that would just assume that these pastors and their congregations be dead. For their disloyalty to the state. And for not worshipping at the altar of safism as loyal branch Covidians. Remember that evil is constrained with the church on the earth. The spirit that wanted to go in and slaughter those churches wholesale was on display, but it was restrained. It was restrained. Talk to a few pastors up in Canada about that. They can fill you in. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. That is the guise under which death will be perpetrated upon untold numbers during the tribulation. But there is a God higher than Caesar. And just as wicked men like Gavin Newsom, governor of California, did not want to hear that, neither will the ones that are coming. And thankfully today we only face lawsuits to be won and the occasional arrest. But that was a dry run for what is to come. What we saw during COVID was a blueprint for what is to come. This is just as it will be in the tribulation. It will not be new, but it will be far worse. Christians saved during this period by the preaching of the 144,000, by the two witnesses, by other tribulation saints, and even by the preaching angel in the mid-heavens. They'll be hunted like animals. And those who kill you will think they are doing their God, who is the Antichrist, a favor. Beloved, I am sorry if these are hard things to hear. But we have as an imperative command by our Savior at both the beginning and at the end of his longest discourse, verse 5, see to it that no one deceives you. And verse 37, stay awake. These would have been jarring things for the disciples to hear. They are equally difficult for us. And yet, tragically, it's one thing for persecution to come from synagogues and courts. It's one thing for the slaughter to be handed down by kings and governors. Yes, they may be the agents of the martyrdom, but Jesus tells us how. 
it will come. Verse 12, verse 12. And brother will betray brother to death. And father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Everyone in here, if they follow Christ for any significant amount of time, have lost family relationships because of their faith. But the missed thanksgivings or the loss of contact or the berating and mocking at family functions, beloved, that is what this spirit of verse 12 looks like when it's constrained. When it is let loose, when the Antichrist is given his time to have sway over the world with no church to hold him back, it will yield this unthinkable state between the closest of ties. The familial bond of blood will be broken. Now this should come as no shock to anyone. Jesus was utterly clear on this from the outset, declaring in Luke 12, 51 and on, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but division For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. These are hard realities, but it is the whole counsel of God's word. Leonard Ravenhill famously said, quote, If Jesus preached the same message ministers preach today, he would have never been crucified. Close quote. Hear Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Behold the Christian reality. We are done no favors by the pulpit if we live under any other illusion. These are the words of your Savior. And thus Jesus goes on. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And many, many have lost their life, and many will. Sadly, we're even told the method by which tribulation saints will die, the known manner of death that children will knowingly betray their parents to, that parents will betray their own children to, brothers, sisters, all turning each other in to what fate? It says they will be turned over to death. What kind of death? Turn with me in your Bibles, beloved, this morning to Revelation. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Go to the end. Chapter 20, verse 4. Listen carefully to both the persecution and the promise. Revelation 20, verse 4. Some things we need to read with our own eyes to aid comprehension. Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God, and who also had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." Such beauty and such horror and such close space. What spirit must be at work to betray your own family to such a fate? How then shall we live, saints of God? 
Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and hope, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Just as we have walked along Jesus' Olivet Discourse in our text, we have watched in perfect sequence with the opening of the seals in Revelation 6, right? We've covered the first four, and we come to the fifth now. Jesus, in our text today, speaking of the persecution and the death of the elect, those who have converted and stand for Christ in the time of the tribulation, this, of course, brings us to our fifth seal in Revelation 6. And, beloved, you're already in Revelation, so turn with me there to your sixth chapter. Sixth chapter of Revelation 6. Looking to verse 9, Revelation 6, verse 9, we'll see the opening of the fifth seal by the one who is worthy to open it, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to them each a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. Now, because we know that verse 14 in Mark that we're coming up on in the next weeks, the abomination of desolation, that marks the midpoint of the seven years of tribulation. And this coming before it is in verse 13. So that shows us that this persecution is going to begin in the first half of the tribulation. And of course, it's going to accelerate to extreme proportions in the second half, known as the Great Tribulation. When the Antichrist has now moved from being a, a mighty leader and politician to setting himself up as God. Oh, and beloved, what will be the crime of the Christian in that day? What will be their crime? There is a God higher than Caesar. And yet even in this, even as we read this account in Revelation 6, even as the world is swimming in a sea of martyrs' blood, did you catch the last part there of the fifth seal? And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Who's in charge? Who is sovereign? God knows down to the number how many will be killed. So rest for a little while. Are not these the very words and the very hope that would be clung to amidst scenes that we couldn't dare imagine? Turn over one page in your Bible to Revelation 7. Revelation 7, look at verse 9. Revelation 7, what's the section titled? A multitude from the tribulation. Listen to this incredible account. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These are who... These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. 
and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Meaning, take heart, dear Christian. We have no idea who may hear this message in the future or even what might befall those in our own church family. Who knows what tomorrow brings? But we know it is true. And we know who holds the reins. And we know who owns the four horses. And we know who is counted every one that will be killed for their testimony. And how many hairs they had on their head. This is my father's world. Also meaning we never need take vengeance on anyone. Leave room for the wrath of God, Paul tells the Romans. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay That is meant to engender compassion from the believer. That person is under the wrath of God. If they do not turn, it will not be my vengeance, but the vengeance of the Lord that will be exacted upon them. Do you ever wonder how you can love your enemies, how Christ commanded? Have you ever wondered how if your enemy is hungry, you give him something to eat? If he's thirsty, you can give him water to drink? That's how. That's where the compassion flows from to live this way. That person is under God's wrath. And I've seen what happens. I've seen where this leads. I've had just a taste of what it will be like. I've read the book. And this is a poor soul in desperate need. I was under God's wrath. I was that man or woman before God saved me. What compassion flows out of the forgiven heart for those who live under the wrath of God? That's not even yet begun to flow. Back to our text. Final verse, verse 13. Verse 13. You will be hated by all because of my name. Now pause there. That, of course, is an entire sermon in itself. And we don't need the Antichrist to spawn this hatred. Even today, if you are a follower of Christ and the world is applauding you, it's time to reevaluate your witness. If you float through life, never seeming to conflict with the world, it's time to reevaluate your witness. This is not the normal course of life for the Christian, the norm is to be hated. The norm is to be an outcast. People so hate the name of Jesus, they use it as a cuss word. So how then are you to be loved? How then are you to be applauded by that same world? Or for far more, how do we expect to float by unnoticed in this world? The servant is not greater than his master. If you wake up in the morning and don't butt heads with the world and the devil, perhaps it's because you're heading in the same direction. Scripture reveals that conflict and hatred were thrown upon Jesus everywhere he went. Everywhere. Perhaps you have conflict with family. Perhaps you're even hated by family or former friends for your faith in Christ. As the polarization of our time deepens and hostility toward God and his claims over humanity reach new heights, a servant is not greater than his master. Consider Jesus' last time he went back to his hometown and he went to church when he was there. How did that go? Luke 4 tells us, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And oh, they loved Jesus 
reading from the scroll. They did. They said, oh, how lovely he speaks, verse 22. Jesus then sits down and proceeds to apply it to them. He turns the mirror in on them. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. It's a good sermon. The servant is not greater than his master. You may have relationships that have suffered, but did they try to throw you off a cliff? Take heart. It is to be expected. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you, Jesus said in the upper room. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will also persecute you. And yet laced in the hardship, there is great hope, isn't there? So before Jesus crosses the Rubicon to the great tribulation in his Olivet Discourse, beginning with the abomination of desolation, right? that's going into the second half of the seven years, where the full weight of heavenly wrath is loosed upon men, he shows us the end from the beginning. That those who will go through such things, indeed those who already have suffered these things, that they know the end from the beginning. Listen to the last part of verse 13, dear ones. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now very quickly, understand what this is saying. And equally important, understand what this is not saying. Is this saying that perseverance and staying strong to the end is what saves us? If one were to pluck this part of a verse out by itself and read nothing else, one could possibly arrive at that. But how do we read our Bibles? Do we pluck out verses devoid of context and build a theology around that? No, that's the fast track to error, isn't it? If something appears to read a certain way, what principle do we employ? We interpret the unclear in light of the clear. So what is clear? Galatians 2.19 Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. How about Titus 3, 5? If you have any Catholic friends, have this verse at the ready. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That is clear. So is Jesus saying that if we stay strong and persevere to the end, that's what will save us? That our salvation is contingent upon good works? Not at all. Interpret the unclear in light of the clear. So what does it mean? It means that the hallmark of a true believer is that Christ in him perseveres to the end. It's not your work of enduring to the end that saves. It is enduring to the end that demonstrates that you are saved. You get that? Your endurance is the fruit of your salvation. Do we get that distinction? Jesus says in John 8, To those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Is it because they abided in his word that they were his disciples? No. It is because they are his disciples that they abide in his word. We must grasp this. It's not a distinction without a difference. It's quite literally a different gospel. 
One claims the merits of Christ. The other claims the merits of you. One will burn up as chaff. The other one will stand the test of fire. Beloved, those who have suffered and are suffering or will suffer persecution for our Lord, great and precious promises are yours in Christ today. Whoever's listening to this, however long in the future, none of those hurts are wasted. Endure with strength. Christ, your captain, has gone before you in all things. But beloved, to grab hold of these promises, to lay claim to them, Christ must first be made precious to you. Being your prize and your highest affection, you can't conjure that feeling up. It is an affection that is wrought of the Holy Spirit when you come in repentance and faith. So if you've been playing church, if your affections are for the things of the world and your desire is to leave that behind, that's not a natural desire. That desire did not come from you. That is the effectual drawing of Christ upon your heart. It means the time to be sober is upon you. As we consider what is to come in last things, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. You may drink of it this morning. Even as we pray, as we sing, as we partake of the table, cry out to God in repentance and faith. A broken and contrite spirit, beloved, he will never turn away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire this morning that as difficult as these passages are, that they would be made beautiful to us. For Lord, even as we look at the suffering and persecution of your people and of your saints and your bride. Lord, we behold your sovereignty and your goodness and your beauty. And Lord, that you have loved us enough that you've gone before us in all things. We ask, Lord, as we continue to prepare our hearts, Lord, we ask that you would cause us to, con to ponder these things anew. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.